me ask you to open up to Romans chapter 13. Uh, Romans chapter 13. What time is it? So much of our lives is determined by what time it is. By what time of day we find ourselves in. Is it 6 a.m.? You'll be doing 6 a.m. things. Uh, Maybe rising from bed. Maybe eating breakfast. Some of you, maybe you're already on your way to work at 6 a.m. For others, maybe you're snoring at 6 a.m. But you're doing 6 a.m. things. 3 p.m. is different. Mid-afternoon is different. You feel different. You're at a different place in your routine. Uh, Maybe you're already beginning to look at the clock at work, wondering how close are you to five. Maybe you're engrossed in some project. Maybe you're picking up your kids from school or bringing your homeschool day to an end. But unless you happen to work a night shift job that causes your daily schedule to be unique, you're probably not in the middle of a deep seven or eight hour sleep at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And you're probably not eating breakfast at 3 p.m. Whatever the rhythms are for your life, your habits, your feelings, even your attitudes change To match the different times of the day. This morning, as we come to the last part of Romans 13, God's message for us is quite simple. See what time it is. See what time it is and act accordingly. Don't be doing 6 a.m. things at 3 p.m. It's Mount Hermon. Do you know the time? Do you know the time in which we live? And does our living, our attitudes, our thoughts, our words and our deeds, do they match the time? So look with me at how Paul teaches this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans 13, beginning in verse 11, beginning in verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, I love the ESV, the English Standard Version. But this is one of those rare times when I want to quibble with a word and their choice of translation. And it's the very first word of verse 11. 
The translators of the ESV have chosen to use the word besides. And that is, uh, 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 that the word can be translated that way from the Greek. So it is an option that's out there. But the word is basically the same as our word and. In fact, it is the most common conjunction in Greek, the Greek word chi. It's used 9,000 times in the New Testament. It is typically translated as the word and. I think the translators of the ESV chose to use the word besides because that kind of makes for a smoother transition, doesn't it? From, from the paragraph you just finished to the next paragraph. But here's the problem. It obscures how the two paragraphs are connected. And in this case, they are very connected. Literally, the beginning of verse 11 says, And this, knowing the time. And this, knowing the time. And what is the this that Paul has just been talking about? It was the call for Christians to be a people of love in verses 8, 9, and 10. We have just been taught that we owe everybody love. Love is the debt that we are to be paying to all people every day. Love is the great calling on our lives. It is the aim of every command God has given us. Indeed, love is the fulfillment of the law. Here is the umbrella command, which all other commands from God serve, under which all other commands from God find their place. Christians are to love, and this knowing the time. See the connection? So there's something in Paul's mind about knowing the time that motivates us to love. There's something about knowing the time that propels us to love, moves us to love, encourages us to love. Okay? So what time is it? What is it that we know about the time in which we live that should be moving us to love? Well, there are some clues in the text. So we've just been talking grammar, we've been grammarians, now we're going to be detectives, okay? So take off your, your English teacher reading glasses, put on your detective cap. Clue number one. Paul says that this time is a waking time. See that in verse 11? A waking time. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. So our first clue about this time in which we live is that it's a waking time. Get out of bed, sleepyhead. The rooster's crowed. The coffee's brewing. And we see this affirmed at the beginning of verse 12. Right? The night is far gone. The day is at hand. The idea is that daybreak has come and gone. The sun is even now rising in the sky. Noon will be here before you know it. Wake up. This is not the time to be sleeping. Clue number two. Clue number two. Paul says that we are nearer to salvation than when we first believed. 
See that second half of verse 11? Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So this salvation is the day when Jesus comes back to make all things right. On Wednesday nights, we just talked, or maybe it was Sunday school, I can't remember, but sometime recently, we talked about how salvation in the Bible is used in a past tense, we have been saved, present tense, we are being saved, and future tense, we will be saved. And when the Bible speaks of salvation in the future tense, it's talking about the return of Jesus. Is talking about the day he comes to make all things right. The day when Jesus comes in judgment with his angels and the saints who have come before. Those who are on the earth will meet him in the air. And together there will be a great judgment brought upon this earth. And all of Christ's people will be gathered to himself that where he is they may always be. And there will be a new heavens. There will be a new earth. And there will be no more sorrow or sickness. No more suffering. No more death. No more pain. That is the salvation that we're waiting for. And it is nearer to us now, dear Christians, than the day we first believed. If you're a believer in this room, you have this longing. You first began to long for that day, for the return of Jesus, when you first believed. When a person comes to Christ and believes on him, the Holy Spirit places this new desire to see Jesus, to be able to look upon our Savior, to be with him. And the more a Christian continues to grow, the more he falls out of love with this world and more in love with Christ. And that means that that Christian has an ever-increasing longing for the day when Jesus will come and appear to us and make all things right. Do you have that hunger this morning, church? Are you praying, Lord Jesus, come quickly? Are you like the, the dear young girl who's already been betrothed? She knows her bridegroom. Is, she knows he's coming to get her any day. And every day as she's caring about her work, she has one eye on the horizon. Is the day the day my bridegroom comes? Oh, how she longs for him. Oh, how she is waiting for him. Is that us? Paul says that that day is closer now than when you first believed. That day is ever approaching. The sun is rising higher in the sky. It's rising higher. It's rising a little higher. Glorious eternal noon will soon come. Now, let's bring in one more clue from another passage that I think really helps. So clue number three, the first coming of Christ is described as the arrival of dawn. Don't you love the dawn? Have you ever been out at the beach or the mountains and you just chose to get up early so you could see the sunrise? And everywhere you looked when you first got up, there was just just darkness, right? There's this pitch darkness. And then suddenly the light starts gradually appearing. Maybe you're sitting on a porch in the mountains. And with that first bit of light, suddenly you begin to see shapes in front of you. And, And trees begin taking shape in front of you as light comes into the darkness. The rolling mountains around you begin to appear. And as the light increases, suddenly the colors begin to appear. 
everything begins to take on depth and hue. With each passing minute, as the dawning continues, as daybreak comes, there's just glory blossoming before your very eyes. The first coming of Jesus is described in Scripture as the arrival of dawn. This was promised back in Isaiah 9 and Matthew 4. We're told that that prophecy referred to Jesus. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Next verse, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What was, what was light coming to this earth? What was light coming to Israel? What was the day of dawn Isaiah had promised? It was Jesus coming to this world and preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the one who will scatter eventually all night away, all darkness. He is going to bring about a kingdom, a world without any sin, sorrow, sickness, or death. But just as the sun doesn't appear each day and suddenly it's noon... But rather, the sun gradually rises. So Jesus is doing his work of scattering darkness gradually. The Old Testament days were days of darkness. The Old Testament days were nighttime. Acts 17 calls the Old Testament days the days of ignorance. Uh, Though God was very much at work in the darkness, and though there was a holy remnant of people who were truly saved in Old Testament times, The vast majority of the ancient world lived in blindness, rebelling against God, no gospel, pagan mythology enwrapping their lives, no hope of salvation. The world was full of people, and only in Israel was their gospel light. And that light was like a candle in the darkness. It was like a a candle lit at 2 a.m. The coming of Jesus was the coming of dawn. And through his life and his death and his resurrection, Jesus did everything necessary so that darkness would be defeated. The decisive blow to sin and all death in this world was delivered at the cross and at the empty tomb. And then he commissions his apostles and apostles go out into the world and they start spreading the good news and people begin to believe. And suddenly throughout the Roman Empire, people are beginning to believe. And by the end of the first century, we think there were probably between a half a million and a million Christians. The kingdom was being built. The sun was rising. Nations who had never known the true God were suddenly learning of him. And that work has continued since the the first century, century after century, nation after nation. More people groups have access to the gospel today than at any point in history. The times of ignorance are coming to a full end. We're not completely there yet. It's not noon yet. There's not light all over the world. Joshua Project says there's still 4,000 people groups considered unreached. 7,000 if you separate them by political nations. But God is raising up more and more people who are risking their lives, going to the 1040 window, going to the Middle East, going to Southeast Asia, because they believe Jesus and the salvation of souls is worth it. And may God raise up some in this room 
to go be part of that, taking the light to the places on this earth that are still in darkness. There's little corners and crevices where the sun hasn't quite reached high enough to, to, to bring light there. When will it end? Matthew 24, 14, Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout all the world as a testimony to all nations, all ethnos, all ethnicities, all people groups. And then the end will come. And what will the end look like? Revelation 22, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. There will be no need of light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and he will reign forever and ever. This is the story of history. This is the story of where history is going. Before the coming of Jesus, this was the nighttime. The nighttime is now past. Jesus and his first coming, that was the, the dawn. And as people are coming to Christ and the kingdom is being built, the sun is rising. And we are closer to the second coming. The day of eternal noon, the new heavens and the new earth where there's no more darkness anymore and there's no need for lamp or sun because the Lord God is the light. That day, it is closer now than when you first believed, Paul says. We don't know the day, we don't know the hour, but when the full number of God's chosen ones have been redeemed, that day will come. And what a day it'll be. <laughs> don't you want the end of all darkness? Do you want the end of all wickedness? No more abuse or manipulation. No more violence and murder. No more deceit and hatred and bitterness. The new world will be a world of love because it will be full of the blessing of God and God is love. It will be a world of light, of eternal noon. A world of love. So what time is it? Well, it's after daybreak, and it's heading fast towards eternal noon. We live in a time of growing light, a time leading to the second coming of Jesus and the establishment of the great world to come. Do you know that, church? Do you feel it in your bones? Do you long for noon? Okay. Remember how verse 11 begins, and this, knowing the time. So now that we know the time, how does that motivate us to the kind of love Paul's just been talking about in verses 8, 9, and 10? What is the connection between living in the time of increasing morning light and love? Well, a few things. Number one, to live in the light is to live in love. That is, Mount Hermon, if the light of the gospel has come to you, that is, if the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes, you were once blind, but now you see. There is light 
What is the light that you've seen? Here's what you've seen. You are a great sinner before a holy God. And that God has made a way of salvation for you in Jesus. And you are loved beyond your wildest imagination. You have a father who has absolutely moved heaven and earth to make you his own. To live in the light of the gospel is to live in love. What is the shape, right? We talked about that person sitting on the porch and at first it's dark and then as the sun begins to rise, there's their shapes appearing. What did we see when light shined on our darkness? We saw the shape of a cross. We saw the shape of a savior who gave his life for us and has brought us into reconciliation with God. You saw the love of God in the face of Christ. You are not in ignorance. You know these things. Most of you, you've heard these things from the pulpit, from your Sunday school classes, from your own copies of your Bible, in your own language. The light has come to you, and it's the light of the message of Jesus that has transformed you. And as you are living in the reality that you are so loved by God, it is turning you into a person of love. God's care for you. His tenderness towards you, how he exercises his sovereignty for your sake, the glories that you live in, all the things that you know from the Bible about God's care for you. It changes you. To live in the light is to live in God's love. And that makes you a person of love. Don't live like you did when you were in the dark. At nighttime, you sleep. And in the days of darkness, it makes sense that people were asleep to true, divine, agape, Christian love. But we're not in the darkness anymore. If you are a Christian, light has shined on you. You know the love of God for you. You know that God is working all things for your good and that nothing's going to stop that. You know that nothing will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You know that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, that the Bible is a lamp for you, that you're going to a world that is going to be so wonderful and that this life with all its trials is a vapor. You know these things. What should that knowledge do to you? It should make you stop worrying about yourself and care for your neighbor. Who cares if your rights got trampled? You've got heaven coming. Care for your neighbor. Care for your fellow church member. Love the person that God puts across your path. Live in God's love for you through Jesus Christ, which has been revealed to you by the light of the gospel, and let it transform you. Second connection between the light that we live in and love. Knowing the time helps us to love because we see the day of our eternal joy drawing nearer. The day of our eternal joy, it is closer today than it was yesterday. And it is closer today than it was, what, last night. Okay. Every minute is a day closer to heaven. Love can be hard. Let's be honest. Love can be hard. We often need encouragements to keep loving. So I think about when I'm on a long trip. I think what I have my mom here this morning. Uh, thankful that my parents now live in North Carolina. Um, but for many years, when we wanted to go visit my parents, that meant a full 12-hour drive from 
from our house in Rocky Mount down to their house in Foley, Alabama. And I like driving. I'm one of those weird people. I really enjoy being on the road and driving. But after seven or eight hours, even I'm pretty uncomfortable. My back gets stiff, my bottom a little weary. Start wondering, why didn't we stop halfway and get a hotel room? We would finally get to, to Montgomery, Alabama. And that's kind of like the height of misery by that point. I mean, you're just, you know. And then there was that, the turn south. And we'd start hitting those towns that would let us know we're only three hours away, two hours away, one hour away. And as you'd get closer, you'd start to find new energy. Suddenly there was a, a, a new will, a new resolve. Well, we've we got to press on now. Right? The destination is closer at hand. My, my family's faces, the warm fellowship, and the happy end of the journey. It's getting closer. It's getting closer. Just press on a little further. As we'd see ourselves getting closer, suddenly the back didn't feel as stiff. Right? I think that's the idea here in this passage. When it comes to having the resolve to love when love hurts. When you're called to love people and they're not reciprocating. When you're called to love people and it means sacrificing what you really wanted for their sake. And they still don't treat you right. And yet you're called to love them anyway. What's going to keep you loving when it gets hard? Answer, the day of your eternal joy is getting closer and closer. Every moment that passes is a moment closer to paradise. Every moment that passes is another moment closer to the return of Jesus. You're on this journey of faith. You're running the, the race of your faith. And the end is very near. A little bit further. A little more love. A little more hard work of love. Because the end is near. Now we may die before Jesus comes back. And in fact, we, we probably will. And we will know great joy. As our souls dwell with Christ in the intermediate heaven. But the ultimate heaven. The ultimate day we look forward to is the day when he and all who have died in faith will come from heaven to earth. Bodies will be resurrected and united with souls. The great day of judgment will take place. Satan will be cast into hell along with worldliness and death. These will meet their final end. And we... Christ will live forever on this world. This is not our home, church. The new earth is our home. Paradise is our home. And you're on the trip home. And as you see it getting closer and closer, it's, it, it ought to encourage you, to spur you on. Love a little more. Oh, even if it hurts, love a little more. It's, it's not that much further. Maybe you've made it through Montgomery. You're getting there. So as the sun rises higher and higher, as more and more people are being reached with the gospel, we ought to take heart, we ought to rejoice, and we ought to find new strength and new resolve to love. Now, end of verse 12. The end of verse 12, Paul says this. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So you, you see the picture. If the sun is risen and is rising, 
why would you be doing the works of darkness? Why would you be doing nighttime things in the daytime? In the darkness of unbelief and ignorance, you lied and you hated and you manipulated and you tore down. But now the light of the gospel has come to you. Don't do nighttime things anymore. Do daytime things. And Paul uses the language of changing clothes. We're to cast off and we're to put on. And I'm guessing that what you're wearing right now is not what you were wearing when you went to bed last night. Whatever you had on last night in bed, I'm assuming you've cast that off. Those were your nighttime clothes, your pajamas, your nightgown, your sleeping shorts, whatever. Now you're wearing daytime clothes, and I'm glad you are. (laughs) It's not proper to wear your nightgown to church. (laughs) Notice that what Paul says in verse 13 is let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. So so when Paul says that we should walk properly, he simply means it would be inappropriate to wear your nighttime clothes out during the day. And in the same way, the practices that mark your life when you are in darkness should not mark your life now that it is day. And he lists some of these works of darkness that maybe describe who you used to be, but Those days are gone. The darkness is gone. We're headed to noon. Why these sins? Orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality. Why are those at the top of the list? Because Paul knows his audience. And he was writing to Roman Christians, mostly Roman Gentiles. Before they were saved, they participated in the typical life of their Roman culture. These were the practices that had begun to characterize the Roman way of life, especially in the cities. When we were in Pompeii, we saw the evidences of this way of life that was normal for those Roman citizens. And it was all the more in the capital city, which is where Paul is writing to. People in Rome would, would go to the temples of Vesta and Venus Minerva and Mars. They'd go up on Capitoline Hill, the center of life in Rome. And what would they do there? They would participate in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality, both as entertainment and as worship to those pagan mythological gods. So Paul knows his audience. He's writing to people in Rome who used to do those things. And he says, that's who you used to be. That's how you lived when you were still in darkness. Let us cast off the works of darkness. And for grammarians in here, he uses the aorist tense, which means a once-for-all-time kind of action. It's It's not cast off the works of darkness right now and then go back and put it back on later. That's how we do with our pajamas, right? You took off your pajamas when you got up this morning, you might put them back on tonight. That's not the picture here. This is you cast off and you're never putting those things on again. Night is not returning for you. You are in the light of the love of God. That light will never be removed from you. When you cast off the works of darkness, you cast them off forever. So Mount Hermon, who did you used to be? Before you were saved. 
What sins, what wicked practices, what evil motivations marked you as an unbeliever? And now that you're saved, are you still living like you're unsaved? Now that God has come to you, Jesus has died for you, and the Spirit has brought His love and shed it abroad in your soul, are you still going back and doing the same things you did when you were in darkness? Now that you have seen the depths and the hues and the grandeur of the glory of God in the face of Christ, the shape of the cross, your eyes have seen all this. Are you still running back to the cesspool of nighttime? Here is God's call to us in this passage, and you need to hear it with God's authority behind it. Once and for all, cast off the ways you used to live. Everything about your past life that was wicked, everything about your past life that was sinful, put it away. Don't fold it up and put it in a drawer. Take it outside and burn it. Put off deceit. Don't put it back on. Put off lust. Don't put it back on. Put off hatred. Don't put it back on. If a viper got a hold of your your hand, you would shake that thing off. You would everything you could to get up and you wouldn't put it back on. Turn from your sins. Hate them. Don't run back to the pile of manure and jump in. Paul mentions quarrels, jealousy. These are sins that can threaten a local church. These are sins that can threaten our mission. We want to honor God together as Christians, working together on this mission to fulfill our various callings for the glory of God and the salvation of souls. Quarrels will tear us apart. Jealousy will divide us. And I was telling somebody this week, I said, Mount Hermon, God has given this church such a period of peace that I thank God for it every day. I said, but I know it could be gone tomorrow. Sin. Is deceptive. Satan actively works to bring down gospel preaching churches. We must be on guard against quarrels, against jealousy. This evening, we'll close our study of Romans 13 by talking about what does this look like practically to put on the armor of light. What does it look like to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? But this morning, don't lose me now. Don't lose me now. We should close by examining ourselves. I think it's fair to say that God is calling every one of us to repent of something. God is calling every one of us to turn from some sin. Doesn't mean you're going to walk out of here and be perfect, but it does mean that there should be a true hatred in your heart for all the works of darkness. There should be a true hatred in your heart for all sin and a genuine, sincere, full throttled resolve to do all you can to obey God and not sin. We don't want to be hypocrites. We don't want to be people claiming to follow Jesus while Monday through Saturday we're living a life that is contrary to the commands that our Savior gave us. Real Christians are to be people who have changed and real Christians are to be people who are still changing. 
We're learning to live in the light. We're still every day casting off the works of darkness. So what do you need to cast off this morning? For the sake of Jesus, the one who loves you and saved you, what do you need to cast off? Let's pray. Father, we thank you.